Welcome to Goodfellow Podcasts. This episode is kindly supported by the Auckland Faculty of the Royal New Zealand College of General Practitioners. I'm Dr Louise Kugler and today I'm talking to Dr Nikki Turner about measles in New Zealand. Nikki is an academic general practitioner and the Associate Professor in the Department of General Practice and Primary Care at the University of Auckland. She also works part-time as a general practitioner in Wellington. Her roles include the Director of the Immunisation Advisory Centre, or IMAC, and she is also the member of the World Health Organisation Strategic Advisory Group of Experts on Immunisation. Welcome, Nikki. Thank you. Hi, Louise. Hi. So today our podcast, we're talking about measles in New Zealand, identification of clinical features and management of a suspected case, complications to look out for, the role of vitamin A, safety and efficacy around vaccines, dispelling myths around vaccines, the role of herd immunity and providing resources for families. So Nikki, let's start by defining what is measles? Yes, well, measles is a virus. It's actually an RNA paramyxovirus, and it's probably one of the most highly contagious viruses we know. It's airborne and aerosol spread. So the real problem with measles is how contagious it is. So Nikki, what clinically do we need to look for? What's the natural history and what do we need to ask about? Yeah, so the incubation measles is around about 10 days. It can vary from anywhere from 7 to 21 days. And initially, you tend to have a prodrome with a very high fever of at least 38 degrees, malaise, and what's traditionally been called coplic spots, which are tiny uh, multiple bluish white plaques of about two to four millimeters on the inside of the cheek. And these are seen in about 70% of cases. Now, following on from the prodrome, you see the rash, which is a pretty unremarkable macular papular rash, but it classically starts behind the ears and the head and neck, and it spreads over about three to four days over the whole body. And at the same time as the rash arrives, you see the classical three Cs, which is the cough, which is a very moist, chesty cough, coryza and conjunctivitis. And these are very um, typical of measles, and that's what you'd be looking for. So, Nikki, how is the virus transmitted and what's its infectivity? Yeah, so it's, you tend to be infectious from about five days before to about five days after the rash. It's highly infectious and it's airborne. So if you're standing in the same room, even way across the room from someone else and you're not immune, you're highly likely to catch it. So um, the, the real issue is whether anybody who's um, remotely within quite a few metres of somebody, immune or non-immune, to know their chances of infection. Now, if somebody has previously had clinically recognised, identified measles, then they're highly likely to be immune and you're not worried. If somebody has been um, immunised appropriately, then if they've had one dose of the vaccine, then they're more than 90% likely to be immune. If they've had two doses of the vaccine, they're really up to 97, 98% likely to be immune. So we consider having two doses of the vaccine very high likely to be immune if you've been in contact. So in our surgeries, what precautions should we be taking? Well, the first thing is we really don't want somebody with active measles to be in the surgery because it's so infectious. So the advantage of phone triage, asking people before they turn up and walk into the waiting room whether it could be measles. Um, if somebody does arrive and it looks like measles, you would want to put them isolated in a separate room from others. 
probably there'd be an advantage for primary care teams to wear masks, but the more important issue is making sure every member of the primary care team has had two MMR vaccines to be assured that we will be safe when people come. Um, if somebody does come in and you use a room, it is said by the American CDC advice that it'll probably be contaminated, including the surfaces, for up to two hours after the person's been in the room. So you would have to keep that room away from others for several hours after. So Nikki, we're currently in an outbreak in parts of New Zealand. What is the situation at the moment? Well, interestingly, we've historically had way higher rates of measles than we do now. And the fact that we're anxious about the outbreak now is a reflection of the fact that we are overall getting better control. New Zealand was officially verified as eliminated from endemic measles in 2017 by the World Health Authority. And what that means is that there is no measles transferring from a New Zealand case. So what the outbreaks we are seeing originate from measles cases coming in internationally. So what is happening internationally is that the world had been doing really well up to about 2017, but in the last couple of years, there's some big outbreaks around the world. So New Zealand, like many other countries, are seeing more cases coming into the country. And then of course, there's the risk then of spreading throughout New Zealand. The problem we have in New Zealand is that while we now have pretty high immunisation coverage for our children, we didn't traditionally have high coverage. So 10, 20, 30 years ago, New Zealand actually had very low immunisation coverage. So a large amount of our older adolescents, young and midlife adults, may not be immune. The other problem is, of course, they don't have records. Unless people have managed to keep their well-child Plunkett baby books in their records, many of us do not know if we were vaccinated and we were fully vaccinated. So the real problem is this gap in immunity in our adult population in New Zealand that then runs the risk that when a virus is, um, enters the country, it can transmit through all of those people. So Nikki, we think we've got a case of measles in our clinic. What do we do now? Well, the first issue is make sure that the person is not in contact with other people. You do not want them in the waiting room and you only want them surrounded by people who we are confident are immune. If you have a suspected case, you must notify the local public health authorities and they will give good advice. Um, when you see a suspected case, the recommendation is they want two samples. One is a nasopharyngeal for nucleic acid testing and then a blood test for serology. Now, if you can't get the nasopharyngeal, apparently you can collect urine. So we want both of those samples because it is very important to make the diagnosis because contact tracing and informing contacts becomes very important. Thank you. So we're going to inform public health. What measures should we be taking as far as managing this particular case? So in terms of management of measles, it would be the same principle of managing any other severe virus. So you would manage in terms of hydration, checking for any complications, making sure they're not going on to get pneumonia, encephalitis, severe diarrhea, dehydration, very similar to any other management of any severe virus you'd see in your general practice. Um, there has been a question raised about whether we should be using vitamin A. The international evidence would say that there is a really important role for vitamin A in people who have underlying concerns 
particularly in countries where there's high rates of HIV, where there are children who are malnourished or undernourished, the role of vitamin A is really important. In the New Zealand context, for people who are unwell enough to be admitted to hospital, they will be given vitamin A within the hospital context. Whether we give vitamin A within the community context for less severe cases of measles is unclear. I do not think the evidence base is strong enough to recommend we always use it. However, there is really no harm in recommending vitamin A for any case of measles. The American advice is that you would give an oral dose 200,000 units once a day just for two days. Thank you, Nikki. You mentioned the complications of measles. What are they and what age groups are most at risk and how common is it to have a complication? So complications from measles overall are in the order of about 10% and the most common complications would be otitis media, pneumonia, croup and diarrhoea. Complications occur across any age group. Um, the severity of measles can occur in any age group at all. It may be more severe in adults, but you cannot guarantee this. I think the other interesting thing about the measles virus is we tend to see that for several months after you've had measles, um, people tend to be somewhat immunosuppressed and reappear with other infectious diseases. So the importance of letting the family know that um, the person for the next few months, once they're over the measles, may still be at risk of other conditions. The more severe complications, the ones that are particularly concerning is encephalitis is said to occur in around about one in a thousand people and a quarter of these will go on and have permanent sequelae. The issue of how common is death, it's probably in the order of one in a thousand, one to several thousand. Now, all these complications are based on healthy, well-nourished people. In countries where you have um, a higher incidence of malnutrition and underlying chronic conditions, the incidence of all these complications are way higher. That makes sense. Nikki, tell us about the vaccination strategy currently. Well, vaccination is highly effective against measles. And if we vaccinate enough people, we eradicate measles. It's very clear. It's a simple linear equation. One dose of EBMR is 90 to 95% effective and two doses, 97, 98%. Now, the important message is that the first dose should be given over a year of age. If you do give the first dose to children under a year of age, it may be less effective because of maternal antibody interference. So it is absolutely fine from a safety point of view to give a younger infant MMR, but you cannot guarantee its effectiveness. So the recommended advice is two doses of measles containing vaccine with the first dose given over a year of age. If you have a younger dose, you give an extra dose. In the New Zealand context currently, the recommendations are anybody in New Zealand under the age of 50 currently should be offered at least one and preferably two doses of measles containing vaccine if you have no record or if you have no clear proven history of measles. Now remembering many people will say I've had measles when I was younger that does not necessarily mean it was measles often the diagnosis is inaccurate. If in doubt, vaccinate and revaccinate. There are no safety concerns about giving too many MMR vaccines. If you actually give an extra unnecessary MMR vaccine, the immune system will already have antibodies to respond to it and deactivate it straight away. So actually, your safety profile is very good if you do accidentally give too many. So I reiterate the national message is if you do not have records, it is safer to go ahead and vaccinate. 
Nikki, historically there have been concerns over the MMR vaccine, more so than any other vaccine we give. Why is this and can we touch on it please? Yes, this is really interesting because actually the MMR vaccine is an excellent vaccine with an excellent safety profile that has been used extensively throughout the world since the mid-late 1960s with a very good safety profile. The major concern arose in the early 1990s um, from a single researcher in the UK who did some research that has been completely disproven since, um, where he suggested there was a link with the MMR vaccine and autism. We have extensive data from a range of studies ever since from many different countries in the world to show there is no link. However, that myth has got embedded around the community in many parts of the world. It's very hard to shift. We tend to prefer now not to refer to it. The data is very clear there is no association. So what is the actual safety profile of the MMR? Well, the important thing to be aware of is it is a live attenuated vaccine. So if you give a live vaccine to people with significantly compromised immune system, the virus can actually grow even as an attenuated virus and cause problems. So the very important safety warning is do not use this vaccine for people with significant immunocompromise. Other than that, it's got an excellent safety profile. Um, because it is live and attenuated, you can actually get attenuated disease. So you can see um, sometimes a fever or a mild rash six to 12 days after giving it from the measles component, or you can get some mild swelling under the jaw 10 to 14 days after it in relation to the mumps component. And with the rubella component, you can get swollen glands. And sometimes you can see temporary joint pain, which is actually more common in adult women than children. These are all temporary and they're not long lasting side effects. There are some rare responses. You can get um, temporary low platelet count because once again, it's a live attenuated virus. In rare cases, most particularly if you accidentally give it to immunocompromised, you can see more severe consequences such as encephalitis or aseptic meningitis. And of course, with young children, when you get vaccines and they can have fevers from vaccines, they can get febrile convulsions. Overall, the major issue to watch out for with all vaccines is the risk of anaphylaxis, which would occur very soon after giving the vaccine, which is why we still recommend the 20 minute wait whenever you've given a vaccination to anybody in New Zealand. We have been asked if the current vaccine contains any mercury or thiamersal. MMR vaccines have never ever contained mercury or thiamersal because they're live attenuated vaccines. So once again, that's a myth that we cannot get rid of. Um, we're also asked who should not be given the MMR vaccine. Once again, people with significantly compromised immune systems should not be given live attenuated vaccine. And anybody who has a previous anaphylaxis to any component of the vaccine. Other than that, the vast majority of people can effectively and safely have this vaccine. Great. Thank you, Nikki. Uh, so, Nikki, you've mentioned there may be a fever associated with vaccination and some may be tempted to give some analgesia or paracetamol brufen. Tell us about the best practice here, please. Yeah, our current advice now is you do not need to use an antipyretic. There's often a natural biological reason for a fever. Having a fever with an illness is actually probably supporting the body and overcoming the illness. Having a fever with a vaccine is a natural response to the vaccine. There is no need or purpose in using an antipyretic. We recommend the use of analgesia if somebody is uncomfortable or in pain, but we do not recommend the use of antipyretic for any vaccine 
vaccines, with the one exception of the Vexero meningococcal B vaccine, which is new on the private market in New Zealand. And the recommendation there for using an antipyretic is because young infants may end up being in hospital with a fever which is related to a vaccine and not in any way damaging, but they unfortunately get worked up for a full infection screen unnecessarily. That is the only exception to the rule currently. There is also a belief in the community that measles is okay to contract. Those born prior to 1969 likely have had measles and we all survived. So is this a reason not to vaccinate? Well, prior to having a vaccination program, of course, there was very little you could do about measles. Obviously, you wanted to be well nourished and not have vitamin A deficiency. But other than that, there was very little except supportive treatment to manage measles. So basically, the community had to cope. And if you remember the figures, even when a community coped, there was one in a thousand ending up with inflammation of the brain, one in one to two thousand dying. A lot of children ended up with severe consequences and we could do nothing about it. Now, the magic 1969 is when we introduced the vaccine. Anyone prior to the introduction of the vaccine is highly likely to have been exposed to measles and so will have natural immunity. So the number is related to the fact that since 1969, there is much less circulation of wild measles. So if you did not have the vaccine since that time, then you are very likely to be at risk of measles. And now we have an effective way of stopping measles. Why on earth would you put yourself at risk of it? Great point, Nikki. I also hear patients talking about herd immunity. So is herd immunity enough in New Zealand to be effective at the moment? So we have high immunisation rates or pretty high immunisation rates in our young children. But for a long time, the New Zealand immunisation programme did not deliver high rates. Back 20, 30 years ago, we had only 50, 60% of our population vaccinated. So if you think that through, there's a cohort of maybe 30 or 40% of the population who have grown up who are not fully immune to measles. So no, we do not currently have sufficient herd immunity to stop measles. The other thing is that we have it maldistributed. It's not like you've got unimmunised people just dotted throughout the community. You often have communities of people who may have chosen not to vaccinate or may have barriers or access issues to getting vaccination, and, and they'll be grouped together. So we have local clusters that are at risk of um, measles. So we still certainly are at risk of measles returning and going through the community, which is what we're seeing with the outbreaks this year. Nikki, if families are still not sure about vaccinating, where can we direct them for a non-biased, scientifically-based resources that are relevant to New Zealand? Well, I think the interesting first thing is where do their questions and concerns come from? The starting point is always a close, trusting relationship with your frontline healthcare provider. That seems to be the most effective at all. There's an awful amount of scary stuff out there on social media. When people go on social media, it's not synthesised, it's not organised, and it actually just breeds further fears for people. Our own organisation, the Immunisation Advisory Centre, is based at the University of Auckland, and our commitment is to evidence-based clear advice. So you can certainly steer people to the IMAC website. There's a fair bit of information there on the Ministry of Health website. I think if people want credible international advice, then they should take the best international advice there is. On the whole, that is the World Health Organisation, and I would also recommend the American CDC website as the best knowledge we have today from the synthesis of the best evidence base. 
I think people absolutely need to be warned that if they want to doctor Google themselves, that it's not synthesized and that it's scaremongering tactics and it will actually support their fears, not help them to get through the vast array of really nonsense information out there. Excellent points. Thank you, Nikki. And to conclude our podcast today, what would your take home messages be for our listeners? The take-home message is that we need never to see measles again in New Zealand or in the world. It is perfectly feasible to be able to eradicate this. It requires immunisation and high immunisation coverage. These vaccines are effective. Their safety profile is very well known and they've been used effectively throughout the world since the mid-late 1960s. If you miss out on being immune, this is a highly contagious virus. It certainly affects a lot of people. It kills, it causes brain damage. And even if you don't, if you escape from the severe consequences, you can still be pretty ill for a long time. There are ongoing gaps in immunity in the New Zealand population. Many people who are walking around who are unaware that they may not be fully protected against measles. Um, The vaccine is available free to all from all our general practices throughout the country. Thank you, Nikki. It's been a pleasure talking to you today. If you're a New Zealand GP and would like to claim CPD points for listening to this podcast, go to goodfellowunit.org. You will also find a list of resources relating to this podcast. Thank you for listening.